Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And you guys, I know every week I say I have a special treat. Okay, I get it. I I, I love all of my, my guest hosts. I'm sorry, but they really are awesome. For one thing, I have two people. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. So I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest, because I've never done it before. But you guys are going to be so excited. This is another nursing podcast that you guys are going to love. It's called The Gritty Nurse Podcast, and it's hosted by Amy and Sarah. Hello, Amy and Sarah. Hi, how are you? Hello. (laughs) I'm so excited. It's like we're kind of like spaced out all over the place. We're trying to, to kind of coordinate this. Yeah. It's a little different. I've never done one with three people, so... We're going to see how this goes, but I'm really excited because they have an amazing podcast. You guys need to really go listen to this. It's called The Gritty Nurse Podcast, and they're on Instagram. You guys, where can they find your podcast, for one thing? We're everywhere. We're pretty much, um, we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. You can find us anywhere. So, you know, if you just even do a Google search for Gritty Nurse Podcast, we'll come up. Perfect. Okay, so you guys... That's your homework. Go find the Gritty Nurse podcast. I promise you, even if you just like listen to the very last episode, I we were literally, Kiki and I were literally just listening to it. And it is, it's one of the, like I was listening to it right as we were about to sign on. And I'm dying to listen to the end of it. Like you're going to want to, it's an interesting It's funny podcast. because we were yeah. actually, I was actually listening to your podcast today too, just to figure <laughs> out like, how does the episode flow and mm-hmm. you know, the good nurse, bad nurse dynamic, how is that, how is that really playing out? So <laughs> I'm excited. Oh, thank you. Yes. Their flow is a little different than ours. We do kind of like a, like the true crime version uh, at the beginning. Um, and then we do sort of like a, the good nurse story at the end. And theirs is sort of like teaching you about something and they use storytelling to sort of teach or educate on a topic. Is that right? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I'd yeah, say that's kind yeah. of the way that we go about our podcast. So typically we have some form of a story, whether it was something that has happened to us in terms of our practice or something that we've heard about in the news or in the media. So, and then we we kind of tie that into how that actually affects nursing or how does that affect us as a profession. So yeah, that's kind of our flow. Perfect. Well, you guys know that anytime uh, have other nurses to collaborate with, I love it so much. I'm so thankful to have found them. I'm excited about their podcast. I'm excited for them to get started uh, on this, and it's beautiful. They also have an apparel. Like, guys, what is this apparel store that you have? Oh, my gosh. So this is so crazy, right? So um, we decided to also launch an apparel line. So our apparel line is called the Gritty Nurse Apparel, or I should just say Gritty Nurse Apparel. And the reason we decide to launch this line is it's really in line with our philosophies and views on nursing and really about... Um, bringing light to different situations and really bringing awareness to nursing as a profession and also just being able to speak up. One of the things that I kept on saying is like, there we there's so many of us. And I mean, if we want to see change, we should be able to really mobilize change. But I think we need to have a unified image and a unified voice. And I hope through this apparel line, we can have some of that uh, going. And of course, it's called Gritty. So um, we'll have some, some things that are a little bit edgy, but um, yeah, I think it's all within our personality and just bringing awareness to uh, nursing as a profession. 
Yeah, and I also think it's about breaking stereotypes, right? So within the nursing profession, we know what nurses are, but I feel like outside of it, it's still that, you know, the sexy nurse, the naughty nurse. And we just really want to show people that we're very diverse as a group and we're just more than that. So we have a lot of different um, ideas and things that we want to bring to the forefront. And even people that aren't nurses, we hope that they will, you know, wear some of our shirts too to help elevate the profession. Yeah. As you can see, nurses can be podcasters. We can be entrepreneurs. We can, we can be a variety of different things. So I think there's, there's more than meet DI for sure. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I can remember when I, when I first started this, it was just like, I loved podcasts and I was just going to start my own. I was just going to do a podcast just because it was fun, something fun to do. And then I sort of stepped into this world that I didn't know existed. And I could not believe all the nurses that we're out there doing amazing things. And I'm so thankful just that I somehow stumbled into this because the connections that I've made with different nurses all over the world are just invaluable. And I appreciate it so much. And I love all of the people. Yes. The people that listen, the nursing students, gosh, you know how much I love you guys. And just all the people, the nurses, the new grads who email me and say, how encouraged they are to hear us talking about nursing because it's so hard. And I love to just be that voice of encouragement for them, if I can be, to help lift people up because I know I need to be lifted up sometimes. So absolutely. I'm excited you guys are doing something wonderful with your talents. And I know you guys need to go and uh, listen to the Gritty Nurse podcast and then let me know what you think of it. So I guess we can get started with this bad nurse story. Oh my gosh, this story. Oh, I, I can't even, like when I found this, I, I was like, I had to read it a few times. I was like, this, there's no way this happened. It's so weird. First of all, probably should do a trigger warning because it's a, man, it's grotesque. Mm-hmm. It's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. I was thinking even like when we did our episode on nurses who kill as homework, I I was watching the Netflix series, right? Nurses who kill. And I sort of glossed over this name. So it didn't really jump out at me. But when I read it, I thought, oh, maybe we should have talked about this guy in our episode, you know? Well, I kind of, kind of the same thing. I have been aware. I mean, doing a podcast like, like this, of course, I've been aware of the nurses who kill show series and I've seen it, but somehow, I don't know how I I stumbled on this. I think I stumbled on the story on the internet and then saw that there was a Nurses Who Kill episode. And I remember thinking, well, I don't remember seeing that. And then when I went to find it and I watched it, I just sat there like literally with my mouth agape, just kind of like, good Lord, this is so horrible. I can't even, I don't know. And I, week after week, when I do these stories of nurses, who do unspeakable things and not just nurses. We don't just pick on nurses on, on the show. We <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> doctors, respiratory therapists, physical therapists. We've had all physician assistants. We've had all sorts of, of um, medical professionals that we, we talk about doing different things, but oh my gosh, I just sat there like, how am I shocked week after week of the things that these people do? I don't know, but This one is just like, if you're a little queasy, I don't know if this might not be the story for you. Just warning. I like to warn people just because, girl, when I start talking, once I start talking about the story, I've, you guys, I've researched this so much that sometimes the the words just kind of roll off the tongue and I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying. So you might be a little shocked. So I just want to warn people before I start just Mm -hmm. talking about things. 
yep, it's a, it's a pretty intense situation that happened here. So for sure. Yeah. So this story is about Thomas Dunkley. Did you guys want to talk about this? Because you guys know about the story. You, I sent you the story and, and you knew all about it. You've done the research. You can talk about it if you want to, whatever you want to do. For sure. sure Maybe sure. Sarah will start. Yeah. Why don't we start with talking about the victim? So the victim in this case was someone named Sean Cummins. And we kind of just wanted to honor the victim here because we got a little bit of background information. So in this case, the victim was a boxer and he'd acquired a small level of fame in the boxing world, you know, in his neighborhood where he lived and fought. He was born February 8th, 1968. And his father was the one who really pushed him to get into sports and boxing. He was very committed. He became successful early on. And in 1986, when he was 18, he began to actually box professionally. Yeah, this guy's really neat. And he had a really great nickname. So his nickname was The Governor. And he won the WBA Intercontinental Super Welterweight title in 1992. So like in about 1994, I think, he fought Agostino Cardamone for the European middleweight title. So he actually went on to win full uh, 12 rounds. In the final round, he knocked him down. So he, he, did, he KO'd this guy. So the referee allowed him to lie on the mat long enough to recover without counting him out. And everyone knew that the fight have, should, should have been given to Cummins. However, because he was denied the knockout, his opponent actually won by points, which is quite an unusual situation if anybody really knows uh, about the boxing world. It would have been a life-changing win for him um, due to the amount of money that he would have received for this win and due to the notoriety that it would have gave him and how it would have made him, like it would have elevated his status. I know. This this was really heartbreaking for me. My husband likes to watch boxing. I don't because I can't stand to watch two people pummel each other <laughs> no, to death. And, and, the, and to know as, from a nurse's standpoint, what they're doing to their brains when they're doing that. I just cannot right. stand it. My husband likes boxing. And so he was sitting there working on his laptop and I was watching the Netflix show, just kind of doing research for this show. And he, of course, stopped and was like looking. I saw him like looking up, watching the TV. And when we kind of got through this part of it, where it was talking about how, you know, he was going how hard he fought in this fight and how he really should have won. Mark was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And it was terrible. I mean, how horrible to think. This guy had a rough childhood. He had a rough upbringing. He kind of had to be tough. And this is all he knew. So I think this was his one shot out, right? And he just didn't get it. And this was sort of the beginning of the end. Oh, yeah. I hate that. It's sad. Yeah, so I think he kind of took a downward spiral after this loss. He quit boxing. It looks like he started working as a debt collector, bouncer, and bodyguard for this boy band called Blue. If I'm thinking of the right band, isn't it that song where it's like all technical sounding and it's like, you know, Blue La Dee Dee? I think it's I think it's that song. I think you're anyway. right. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> fast forward to 2004. He was out riding his motorcycle one day on his way back from the gym when a car pulled out in front of him and he basically crashed into the back of this car. He went through the window and as a result, he was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. He actually received a payout of about half a million US dollars or 400,000 pounds. Yeah, that's got to be like really tragic, especially 
for athletes, right? Like, I mean, that's their bread and butter when they like, that's the only thing that they're doing. And for him to have such a tragic accident like that, it's just like, I don't even know how to describe it. It must be pretty much world altering. Right. So it's just kind of from there, it just kind of got really worse. Yeah. But let's talk about how Thomas Dunkley kind of entered the situation. So like in about 2007, he was introduced to a man by the name of Thomas Dunkley through a mutual friend. So Thomas Dunkley was apparently a real big fan of him. And he actually started hanging out with Cummins and they would play video games together and kind of keep each other's company. Eventually, Thomas Dunkley quit his job and then became Cummins' full-time caregiver. So he actually ended up taking care of him on a regular basis. He basically worked as a home health aide, but Cummins didn't actually pay him. Authorities found out later that Cummings never paid Dunkley for all the work that he was doing as an aide and that Dunkley was building up that amount of debt. So Dunkley was apparently expecting to be paid eventually, either through direct payment or through a percentage of a business Cummings was working on that was supposed to make him rich. You know, these quick, these get rich quick schemes, right? It was reported that Cummings was a hard man with a quick temper. He had a reputation for being very difficult to get along with. And it also was reported that Cummings was somewhat verbally abusive to Dunkley and he actually bullied him. Um, However, Dunkley was really obviously capable of leaving the relationship if he wanted to, even if that were the case, but but rather he kind of stuck around. Uh, Yeah, you can't really, I could sort of, I guess I could empathize with Thomas Dunkley if that's where it stopped, if it was like, if you just knew, because look, I've taken care of some people at the hospital who are in situations like this, who are paralyzed or permanently disabled in, in ways such as this, who really are, I mean, come on, they're jerks. They really, I yeah. mean, I mean, like I've taken care of people like that who will treat you horribly, talk to you like you're dirt. And- right. You're just like, oh my gosh, what have I done to you? And as a nurse, I know how to handle that situation most of the time. I will say right. though, I mean, come on, we're, we're human. But gosh, that's not easy to to hear that. At the same time though, you can't justify what happened after this. Right. And I mean, I guess in Cummings' defense, like if we think about maybe like the psychological aspect of him having all these various different things, he probably was just generally a very angry guy. And I mean, the fact that now he's in the situation where he was paralyzed is just, he, he's like, if we think about our patients who don't have that autonomy, they, they feel that they, they, they might lash out. They feel that they don't have control of the situation. So maybe this was his version of trying to take control of the situation. What I've found is that whenever I've taken care of patients like this, who are really difficult and who a lot of times what they do is they have very specific ways that they like every single thing done. And if you don't do every, you know what I'm talking about, Sarah? Like Mm -hmm. if you don't do every single thing exactly, oh my gosh, it's a problem. So usually, you know, you get report from the nurse before and they're like, oh Lord, you know, and they start going through all the things and they're like, they're terrible. What I usually do is I'll like go in there and I kind of try to figure out what is it that they want. And if I know what they want, I just do that. And then they're usually pretty good because they see like, hey, she's actually trying to do the things the way I like. And then once they see that, they usually soften a little. And that's part of the therapeutic relationship between the nurse and the patient. And that's what we're supposed to do. I'm not saying I do it perfectly every time. Of course I don't. But 
if we're being a good nurse, that's what we should be doing. We should be trying to overlook those things in this patient, try to overcome those things and help that patient meet you halfway, you know, and, you know, be therapeutic with them. I don't think that Thomas Dunkley had the ability to do that. He was not, first of all, he was not trained as a nurse. He was more of an informal caregiver. And that's not the same thing, you know, as us being trained as a nurse and trained how to handle situations like this. Yeah, and I think he really wasn't accountable to anybody, right? He didn't work for an organization or company that had any oversight. He was kind of just doing this, I feel like, because he thought there would be some big payout at the end. So maybe he thought, maybe he knew about the settlement that he had received before, or there was some talk of a business that he was starting that he was maybe hoping to be a partner in because he was spending so much time looking after Cummins. So I think this is where the plot thickens. So after Dunkley decided that, you know, things weren't really going well, he decided to get the money that he thought he was entitled to by killing Cummins and stealing his identity. So not only did he cash checks in Cummins' name, he also took out loans. And in 2012, there was a nurse that would normally come to check in on Cummins, and she came by. And she was greeted by Dunkley, who told the nurse that Cummins had fallen ill and was in the hospital. And that sort of raised some red flags because the nurse thought that was suspicious. She started checking around. She actually um, couldn't find him in any hospital and no one had heard from him since the nurse checked on him over a week before. So she then reported that to the police and they went to do a welfare check. So here's where the grotesque part comes in. They found Cummins' remains in garbage bags, cut up into 10 different pieces and placed into freezers. And so while that was happening, while the police were raiding his home, Dunkley was watching from his car from across the road. He then took off and attempted to flee, but the police caught up with him. He claimed that Cummins had died of natural causes and he panicked because he thought everybody would think he did it. But what they found is that Dunkley had been doing internet searches on how to kill someone and how to cut up a body and dispose of it. So I don't think he would really talk his way out of that one. No. no. Those and internet I mean, searchers, they'll get, they'll get you every time, won't they? <laughs> oh my Google gosh. is spying on you, everything that you do. Yes. Well, I mean, like, you knew that there had to be some form of a motive, right? And I mean, I think when we're talking about the accountability piece, so like, Dougley was con- uh, convicted and sentenced to 34 years before he could get um, access to parole. Yeah. And the judge did say to him, like, hey, this is the, the the reason why you're getting this judgment is because it's it was a uh, murder for gain. So so they did see kind of the this the lining there where it's like, you know, this this person who um, was incapacitated and received a large lump sum of money you were doing this work for them. And there probably was some expectation on his part that he would get, get paid. And th- there had to be something that ensued between the two of them to, to end up with this type of result. The dismemberment of the body was such a grotesque act, violating Mr. Cummings as a person and his dignity and death. Like, I mean, I, I think when we think about true crime and these various different um, horrifying acts, when people tend to do that to a body, they're, they're typically really angry. I mean, Usually if it's just like a, a crime out of passion, it might be just, you know, maybe it's just the 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 wound that's inflicted is is quite is not significant as, you know, someone who might be stabbed a thousand times or someone whose whose body has been dismembered. So I mean, I think that um the judgment was fair and was swift. Absolutely. I agree with you guys. Um I think that just knowing I mean, I think 
just the evidence that we have, it's sort of obvious that no, I don't think anyone in their right mind would would find their friend dead and then assume that other do mm-hmm. go to the extent that he did. No. Yeah, I think I actually remember reading something in one of the news articles that I was um, when I was doing my research that he actually made a defense of saying that he had died of natural causes. And it's like, well, even if your friend died of natural causes and you were really concerned about the body or or your your friend, one, you wouldn't dismember them. And two, he went on like a spending spree. So he went and put $10,000 in trust and bonds and took another $15,000 to uh, spend on clothes and cars and other things like that. So, I mean, hey, man, if one of my colleagues died in my my situation, I would be like, oh my gosh, freaking out, call the police, you know, get help. But this person hid the body, dismembered the body, and then took the money and started doing things with it. So to me, that just shows guilt. And he was obviously thinking about this for a while. This was premeditated. When the fact that he stole his identity and had all these plans for the money, he obviously spent a lot of time thinking about what he would do once he killed um, his friend. For sure. That's, yeah. I mean, you said it perfectly, Sarah. Uh, the, the thing is, one thing that I kind of noticed is that this nurse that was coming around uh, to see him, the community the community nurse, like the home health nurse, I guess we would call it here in the States. This nurse is, uh, seems, I don't know, there wasn't any mention anyway, that this nurse had any sort of ill will toward Cummins or that there was any negativity. It, so I feel like that nurse knew how to handle this situation with Mr. Cummins and probably did have a really good therapeutic relationship with him where she was going around uh, checking on him and had probably developed enough of a relationship with him that she was concerned, you know, when she, when that, when his friend uh, is saying, you know, he's in the hospital, like she went and checked up on him, you know? I, so right. I, mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't think, and I watching uh, some, some of the interviews with him, uh, he actually, yes, he was a hard man at first. And yes, he did some questionable things when he was younger, you know, but he also had some regrets and he he wasn't proud of those things. Um, and I think that it's not really fair to use Thomas Dunkley's version of him because that was a man fighting for his life, not wanting to go to prison. So he's saying whatever, you know, he has to say. Right. And it's mm-hmm. his word against, you know, against who? Because uh, Mr. Cummins is not certainly not there to defend himself. So... I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, I mean, I think in the, like the judicial system, especially if you are um, trying to defend yourself, they're always going to be out to try to make the other person look really bad. Right. To make them look like not, not, not so much that they deserved it, but there were certain mitigating factors that led up to this particular incident. And I think, I mean, it's a part of the legal system and it's a part of how courts work, but I, I really, I really do feel for the families when, they start to really attack the character of someone who actually can't defend themselves, right? So um, I do find that completely unfair, but I mean, I know it's a part of the process, but definitely not uh, fair to kind of, you know, tarnish tarnish a dead man's name. No, no, I agree. I I know that they're just trying to do whatever they can to get their their client off on whatever charge it is, but... It does seem really unfortunate to just drag this person through the mud and their whole family and they're the victim, you know? Absolutely. Well, I guess that's our 
bad nurse story. It's it's pretty pretty bad. I mean, that's so grotesque. I just I don't know. It's shocking. Sometimes I wonder, like, why do I even do these? I I will sit there and sometimes and think, why am I subjecting myself to this when I'm like reading it and I'm like feeling really bad and sometimes honestly depressed because reading this stuff gets so dark. And then I just have to kind of remind myself, like, you can't just pretend like this stuff doesn't happen. It's really not, you know, that's not healthy either. Kind of like, let's don't address the fact that all this stuff goes on. You really should talk about it, honor the victims, uh, shine a light in that dark area and let people know, yeah, this stuff goes on so that hopefully we can protect people in the future. We can maybe see the warning signs and prevent things from happening, hopefully. And maybe even if someone is listening to this podcast and they're thinking about doing something crazy like that, maybe it will deter them from doing it. Hello. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Gosh. And I mean, I think you kind of hit the the nail on the head when you mentioned like the nurse kind of felt that there was something untoward, right? She yeah. knew her patient. She knew kind of what to expect with his behavior because she's been taking care of him. And she, 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 she acted on that intuition. And I think that's also another good thing that we have as nurses is kind of, it's like our version of a spidey sense, right? It's yeah. just like, hey, something just seems untoward. Let me just check it out. And that's exactly what she did. She kind of, took those extra additional steps in terms of initiative to say, Hey, you know, let me really make sure that my patient is okay. Because, you know, sometimes with her being a home nurse, like that is a part of her role. And still she kind of went above and beyond to say, Hey, you know what, this seems out of the ordinary. Let me just do a little bit more investigation. And I think that's a really good quality and a good trait for nurses to have, because just even using this example, you could be getting orders from a physician or, or, you know, there's something that you've seen or something is off with your patient. I think you should trust that intuition in that sense and maybe do a little bit of further investigation. Yeah. And I think if she was doing the bare minimum, she would have just took what Dunkley said at face value and said, okay, I'm going to leave and I'll just go on to my next client. But she actually took the time and went to all the different hospitals. And I think in that way, um, just advocating for your patients is something that we normally do as nurses. And she really, um, she really did that. So good for her. Yeah, it it's I love the fact that there is a little good nurse snuck into this bad nurse story yeah, because for sure. <laughs> yeah, cuz the actual uh, real nurse really in the story cuz he was uh, a caregiver who was in a nurse role, but the trained nurse actually stepped in and did the right thing and I love that that she sort of I don't know, kind of like stole the show a little bit there at the end and and became the the hero I guess of the story at least to bring awareness to what was what had happened you know so that he didn't, sure. get, didn't get away with it mm-hmm. well I guess we can talk about our good nurse I'm excited about this good nurse so since we were kind of talking about our our bad nurse was from England I don't know how that happened how I ended up talking about because I believe that the one that we did last week was also from England but it's just <laughs> it just happened that way I really don't know how but um so I thought we should probably come up with uh, another European nurse. And I found this really cool nurse that has the best story. And it's one of those stories where like you start out and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then you're like, oh, well, that's really cool. And then you just keep on like, good grief, what else did this person do? Right, right. So this is about Kofawarala Pratt, Kofawarala Abini Pratt. She was the first black nurse in the National Health Service. Over you guys from the British area and from the United Kingdom, the National Health Service. Of course, that is 
all of the people in their medical and their healthcare field, right? Like in, in the United States, we do not have a national health service. We don't have um, a government-funded uh, medical service. It's it's really unfortunate that we don't have that. It's very sad. There's a million sad, horrible stories that I could tell you about how awful that is. But I love the fact that you guys have that there. Um, and we have a lot of people that listen from that area. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. So I thought it was kind of neat to do someone uh, from that area since we were talking about a bad nurse from the area. So Kofawarla was born in 1915 in Nigeria to a prominent family. She always wanted to be a nurse growing up, but her father thought the career wasn't a suitable one. I feel like I say this all the time on this podcast when I'm talking about nurses. It's like anyone brought up in, uh, I guess, a quote, upper class family or higher class family or prominent family, however you want to word it, it seems like their parents never want them to be a nurse. I don't know what the deal is. We just don't have a good reputation for some reason, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I guess I was, I would say that nursing has somewhat of an image issue, right? I think um, people tend to think of nurses still as, as handmaidens or, you know, like still the lady of the lamp, not to knock Nightingale, but things have changed so much since then. And I think um, it, back then it just didn't get the respect that it deserved. So I think that carries on in families as well. Oh, for sure. And they saw it as, oh, that's something sort of lower class people do. It's a it's a mm-hmm. more blue collar field to go into. It's a skilled, more vocational, technical type job. And I don't, Maybe it was that way back then. She didn't seem to mind. She was a very intelligent person, and yet that's what she just wanted to do. And so this, the field of nursing obviously has evolved over the the centuries, the decades, whatever, into something completely different than what it was when it started out. And so she trained to be a teacher. In fact, she taught at a college in Nigeria for several years. And I guess she kind of always kind of kept that in the back of her mind that she wanted to be a nurse. So she married a Nigerian pharmacist. His name was Olu Pratt. And they had to move to London because he wanted to go to medical school. And so he went to study medicine at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And in 1946, Kofawarla began studying nursing at the Nightingale School at St. Thomas Hospital. So she kind of got her wish. Like she just played it cool. She went to be a teacher. She's like, I'll make my father happy. I'll be the teacher. And then she gets married and then they move to London and she's like, hey, nobody's looking. I'll just go to nursing school. <laughs> I do what I want. I'm out of my mom's house. <laughs> yeah. She became a registered nurse in 1950. She worked for the National Health Service for the next four years. She was the first black nurse to work for the National Health Service, which of course, you know, we said that earlier, but that's a significant feat right there in in and of itself. The fact that she's that courageous, she's just like, hmm, I just want to go work for the National Health Service. Did it even dawn on her, do you think, that nobody had ever done that before? (laughs) She just went and did it. (laughs) I feel like she was a real trailblazer because this is really like, you know, starting your nursing career later in life and also having a second career, which a lot of nurses do these days. I'm actually in a couple of Facebook groups, which is one is actually about 
nursing or starting nursing school in your 30s. And there are so many people there that, um, you know, are starting nursing later in life. And it's just really good to see all of the support that they're getting from their peers. And you really can do something that you want. It doesn't mean that just because you're older that it's too late to fulfill your dream. So I think she really showed that um, at a time that not a lot of women were even in the workforce. Yeah. And I mean, like, I'm just looking at the timelines and I'm kind of like, when was World War II? Wasn't World War II like around like 1939 to like 1945? So, I mean, very, very up and coming and progressive that she was actually able to become a registered nurse in 1950. So I think that's that's kind of amazing that, you know, she would have been living through the whole Nazi era and whatnot and uh, was still able to um, become a nurse and actually go to a nursing school and become the first Black nurse to work for the NHS. So definitely amazing. Oh, man, I agree. In 1954, she returned to Nigeria. And then as if that wasn't enough, she in 1960, she became the first Black matron of University College Hospital. And in 1965, she was appointed chief nursing officer for Nigeria. I mean, that sounds like a for all pretty of Nigeria. Big, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a pretty big deal. Uh, she was also the vice president of the International Council of Nurses and later became the commissioner of health for Lagos. So yeah, she did a few things before she ended up uh, retiring. She was awarded the Florence Nightingale Medal, which is the highest international distinction a nurse can achieve. She, yeah, she accomplished a couple of things in her nursing oh. career. So yeah, she was busy. <laughs> she was made a fellow of the Royal, Co- Royal College of Nursing in 1979. She passed away on June 18, 1992. But my goodness, all of the wonderful things that she did. Such a brave soul and just kind of a, like you said, Sarah, just a, a trailblazer, um, unafraid to just do whatever she wanted to do. And she lived for a very long time. So what would that be? Like 1915 and she lived in 1992. That's like, oh, 77 years. That's amazing. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, I love the fact that we get to celebrate um, someone every week on this podcast. It's always kind of an uplifting. It's a little downer, you know, when we talk about the the bad, dark stuff that people do. And so it's, it's nice to end on a, a more of a positive note, you know? It's just uplifting. It's encouraging. And it reminds us how wonderful the people are in the nursing field. I'm so proud to be a nurse and I'm proud, more proud whenever I read, you know, things that people have done like this over the years. And so um, she makes me really proud to be a nurse and I'm happy to be able to just uh, let people know that she existed and kind of tell her story. Absolutely. I, and like, I applaud you. This is a great story and um, it did kind of turn things around. And and it's, it's also good to really learn something too. Like I didn't know very much about her. And I think this took, the, uh, for me, this kind of gave me the opportunity to learn a little bit about this particular nurse as well and learn a little bit about her history. So um, I'm actually very thankful and grateful for that. So thank you. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. kudos to her and her memory lives on in her work and her accomplishments and you know, the fact that we were able to find this story, it just really shows that her legacy lives on. Yeah, that's so true. Well, you guys, I appreciate you for coming on to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse um, and guest hosting. This was a, a first for us. And I think it went really well. We we managed to somehow tell the stories without walking over each other as we're talking. I didn't know how this was going to work. It worked beautifully. You guys worked so well together, so professional. And 
I'm excited to get um, everything, you know, edited and out there for people to hear. And where can people find you? Just remind people again where they can find you. Um, well, people can just go to grittynurse.com. That's probably the easiest way. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And to listen to our podcast, we're on Apple, Spotify. We're on YouTube, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. So you can find us in a lot of different places. And we also release weekly. So if you're looking for a weekly fix, you can uh, check us out. Yep, we're pretty much the only gritty nurse. So if you if you type gritty nurse, the gritty nurse podcast into your search engine, you will definitely find us. We're the only ones right up at the top. Nice. Wonderful. Well, so happy to have you guys on. You guys know you can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email me if you want to at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. Your suggestions, your if you have any complaints, I hesitate to say that just because I'm a little sensitive, you guys. Come on, be nice. Uh, I know I make mistakes and say dumb things all the time, but I'm sorry if I make mistakes. You know, it's a conversational podcast, so stupid things are going to come out of my mouth all the time. I say things all the time that I didn't necessarily research, but if I said something wrong, I apologize now, and that way I don't have to go back and do it later. <laughs> so you can find us also at uh, GNBN Podcast on Facebook and Twitter and Good Nurse Bad Nurse on Instagram, you guys. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse. <laughs> so cute. I love it. <laughs> and thank you so much for having us on as well. We really appreciate it. Aww. This was great. It was fun.